Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Thank you for joining with us again for part two of the three-part series titled, I'm Still Here. And this is uh, my sharing why I'm still okay calling myself a Christian. Now, some may feel like, well, that's a label. And yes, you're right, it is. But it's one that for right now, I'm still comfortable with. And if you caught uh, part one of the three-part series, then you're set to go. If you didn't, let me give you a quick summary. And maybe if you did listen to it, it's, uh, um, it's like a refresher anyway. So on part one, I talked about that. What got me thinking about this was that over the summer, there were a couple of people, and maybe I think more than two, um, who were influencers, kind of well-known pastor types, who said, I'm not a Christian anymore, or I'm genuinely losing my faith. And depending on what circles you were in, there was a lot of conversation about it. And there were people who reached out to me and asked me what I thought, and I said, well, I don't know them, so I'm not going to give a bunch of conjecture and speculation as to what happened. But it did get me thinking about why I'm still here. Why am I still calling myself a Christian? And I reflected on the tradition that I grew up in, lowercase t tradition, the expression of Christianity um, that I grew up in. And I reflected that on how oftentimes when we call ourselves a Christian, we're doing so according to one small expression, but that Christianity is actually very big and broad and vast. And, And so my walking away from a smaller expression, which for a season was helpful, was not because I abandoned the faith, but because I'm walking more fully into it. Um, And and so this tradition, all these small expressions and traditions are only a small part of a larger whole, and I'm interested in embracing as much as I can, the good and the bad, uh, the beautiful and the ugly, all of it. And and today what I want to do is I want to explore the historical Jesus and what I think is his interaction with the religion of his day. And it's a really, I think it's a really interesting um, interaction, and it's taught me a lot, and it's teaching me a lot. And on part three, um, which will be out in a couple of weeks, we'll talk about how the Christian tradition, like any healthy tradition, invites us to go beyond itself. And so with that said, I'm still here, part two, Uh, Jesus and religion. So I've said on several occasions and in several contexts that if there's anything at all that kept me within the Christian tradition, it's the historical Jesus. And by the way, this is true by a mile. I'm not even sure there's anything else that has kept me within the Christian tradition than the person of Jesus that we see in the Gospels. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, says something like how, you know, thousands of years ago or in Jesus' day, those who are outside the accepted religion. So the sinners, the hookers, the lepers, the tax collectors. Uh, tax collectors think like corrupt white-collar business person. Um, that the, They were seen in the Gospels as those running to Jesus. And then he says, and then thousands of years later, they're the ones running from the church. So in Jesus' day, the sinners were running to him. Thousands of years later, those same people are running from the church. I'm pretty sure after he wrote that sentence, he like dropped his pen or dropped the mic and like sat down and had a scotch and just savored it. Because it's that single comment, that one sentence, and I'm not recalling the quote exactly, but it just like encapsulated my struggle with the Christianity that I knew and my um, kind of being enamored with Jesus. It was this weird back and forth for me. And some of this was because I often felt that I wasn't I wasn't really connected to the Christian expression I grew up within. I, I, I would say I didn't feel like I wanted to f- never f- 
never wanted to fully invest in it might be a better way to say it. And some of this, uh, a lot of it was on me. I, I didn't toe the line. I didn't behave well. I didn't do all the you know things that good kids were supposed to do. Um, but it was more than that. It was deeper than that. And, and it took me a long time to put my, my finger on it. And I'm not even sure I still can put my finger on it. But there was one time where I felt, I believe it was my senior of high school, where I kind of knew, I'm like, okay, this is, re- like, I can't do this. And it was a friend of mine who was a great guy, um, but he was really involved with his youth group, and his youth group was doing some event, so he invited me and a couple other people to it. And we walked in, and it was this, uh, met a bunch of his friends from his church. They were good, kind, loving, sincere people. So don't hear me saying, like, I couldn't invest because the people there were just terrible. Um, not at all. I just... The people that I met were great. They had an amazing, this event was at an amazing facility. Um, the music was good. I remember talking to his youth pastor who seemed to be a really genuine guy, a really cool guy. And, but when I was there, I was like, this doesn't work for me. I, I can't, I just, to this day, it's something, like I said, I can't fully explain it. There was just this gut level feeling, like this intuition of this is not my thing. And I experienced that in a lot of ways and in a lot of places. It was true in high school. It was true in college as well. Um, I would feel like drawn toward this uh, expression that I grew up within. And then I would be like, no, I can't do it. And I had questions, like sincere questions rooted deep within. And I was grateful that I had friends who pushed me um, to, to consider uh, things that I had taken for granted, people who encouraged me. I had in college a few professors who... Uh, would sit and engage questions without judgment, and I'm really, really grateful for them. I had people who challenged me to consider and reconsider all the questions that I had and the 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 beliefs that I just took for granted and thought, no, this is the way it is. And and it made me um, made me begin to wonder and think about this whole Christian thing in, in a new way, and I would say in a deeper way. And this is when I began looking into the life of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And and I honestly, I don't remember what caused me to start looking more fully into his life, but what I do remember was by the time I was leaving college, there was this new perspective being born. And the first time I recall expressing um, or giving voice to this new expression out loud, I would say, was shortly after college graduation. I lived in Grand Rapids, Michigan at at the time. And there was a bar I used to frequent called Mulligans. And if you live in Grand Rapids, you, I'm pretty confident, are at least aware of Mulligans. And there was one night we were there and we were, it was a small group of us. It was super late and we were getting hungry. So we went across the street to Yesterdog, another wonderful um, Grand Rapids installation. I know that's still there. I, I don't know if Mulligans is, but anyway. Um, and we were at Yesterdog, and then my buddy and I got talking, and he's like, let's go to Denny's. I don't know why we went to Denny's, but we went to Denny's. And we were, we, when we were there, we started talking about faith. And he wasn't a Christian, and maybe that's why I was like, well, he's not going to care what I say. He's not going to be like, well, this is dangerous or whatever. But I just said to him, I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I, I can't do the church thing right now. Like, I, I can't, the whole Christian thing I'm struggling with, but man, like, I'm really cool with Jesus. Like he, Jesus was human. Uh, Jesus was real. His life was amazing. And as I was talking about it, looking back, it was almost as though I was giving myself permission to push into that, to go for it, to try to understand who Jesus was and 
kind of say, yeah, no, I don't have to do all the, the Christian stuff that my expression or, or tradition is telling me to do. And so that was actually when I started reading the Gospels, and I started reading them uh, trying to observe certain things. Like I would read them and try to understand how Jesus a- interacted with religious people. I would read them and try to see how Jesus responded to sinners, or I would focus um, on you know Jesus' teaching on wealth and poverty, or I would try to understand how Jesus talked about heaven and hell. And each time I would give something like a particular focus, I would discover something new. And I had this sense like I could spend the rest of my life trying to understand this, to digest it. And one time while I was reading the Gospels, I was looking at Jesus's interaction with religion. And this was fascinating because Jesus wasn't a Christian. And I, (laughs) I point that out. And what's interesting is I've said this before on a plat- from the platform in, in multiple contexts, and people like initially get a little uncomfortable, and then they, it settles in like, oh yeah, no, he, he, he wasn't a Christian. Right, Jesus was Jewish. Uh, and before we get into his interaction, I want to give a few details about Judaism, uh, particularly Judaism as I understand it in Jesus's day. It's important to remember that, that Judaism in Jesus' day was not just one idea or one conviction or one way of believing or one group. Judaism was diverse in thought and conviction, both in relation to culture and religious beliefs. Uh, remember, the Roman Empire occupied Judea, which Judea is the pro- what Rome called the province that we would refer to maybe as Israel, but they, um, it was Jesus' land, and Rome was there while Jesus was alive, and the Jewish people, the people of Israel— Um, different groups within Judaism, they had different ideas about how one, as an observant or pious Jewish person, should respond to Rome. So there were some who were like, we need to kill him. We need to fight back. We need to liberate ourselves. There were others who said, no, uh, Rome is here and occupying us and has their boot on our neck because we've been unrighteous. And which means if we're righteous, then then Rome will leave and we'll be able to overthrow them or we'll get our freedom back. Others said, hey, you know what? The Romans actually aren't that bad. And um, I think we should join with them because it would benefit us. It would benefit them. And, and, and so they didn't see eye to eye on how to deal with Rome. And they didn't see eye to eye on uh, many things with regard to religion. Like, for example, there were two major groups One said there is no resurrection um, of the dead, and one said there is a resurrection of the dead, all within Judaism. And there were even different schools of thought within one sect of Judaism. And so even if you're going to talk about like the Pharisees, for example, well, there were different schools of thought within the Pharisaic tradition. My friend Kent Dobson, who, by the way, Kent, I think, has forgotten more about Judaism than I'll probably ever learn. He says in Jesus's day, there was Judaisms, plural, uh, as a way of helping people see that there was diversity. And by the way, it's not very different from today. This is what we talked about on episode one, that Christianity is not just one way of doing things. It is a big, broad tradition with all kinds of branches and denominations. Um, When I lived in Michigan, there was actually two churches that had the same exact name with the exception of one word. It was such and such Christian Reformed Church and such and such Reformed Church, and their buildings were on opposite sides of one parking lot. So these... (laughs) These two churches shared a parking lot, 
but they had separate buildings and were a part of separate denominations. And I'm not kidding or, or exaggerating. And, and every time I would drive by it, I'd be like, oh my goodness, I can't imagine what their church softball league is like. I mean, talk about intensity. You're getting out of a car next to somebody and you're going into separate buildings. I mean, seriously, some people estimate there's like 30,000 Christian denominations, all of which apparently have their distinctives. And people are really committed to their denominations and will tell you their distinctives. Like you have the Christian Reformed Church, the CRC, and the Reformed Church of America, the RCA. They are different and they will tell you that. I can't tell you why they're different, um, even though I know a lot of people who are go to CRC churches and RCA churches, but they, they are very, very um, certain that they're not the same. <laughs> I'll say it that way. So again, when, we, when we're talking about Christianity, we're not talking about one thing. We're talking about a lot of things that make up this bigger deal. It was the same way with Judaism in Jesus's day. And I feel the need to point this out because to talk about Jesus and Judaism feels uh, a little too simple. Judaism was complex and Jesus lived and taught in the midst of this. Jesus, some scholars contend, would have grown up uh, within the sect of the Pharisees. Now, some of you are like, oh, wait, wasn't Jesus like really hard on the Pharisees? Yes. And it's possible that Jesus was hard on the Pharisees because he knew their tradition and their expression better than anyone else. It's like when, uh, if you're hard on your family, you might talk about your brother and be like, man, my brother, but, and just you're harder on him and you're comfortable with that because underneath all that, there's a love and a connection and a shared experience. But then if somebody else is like, dude, your brother's a jerk. You're like, whoa, wait, you can't say that about my brother, even though you've just trashed your brother the day before. Um, And I think this is what we see happening with Jesus, that Jesus grew up within the Pharisaic tradition, uh, within the sect of the Pharisees, and he was harder on them uh, because they were his family. Jesus was enmeshed in this culture. And one more detail uh, that I think is worth saying is when we talk about Christianity, we're talking about a religion that anyone can be a part of. But when you're talking about Judaism, it's remember um, that to be a Jew was not just your religion, it's also your ethnic and national identity. So when we talk about Jesus being enmeshed in this culture, this is a totalizing, a, a much larger reality than I think even we understand. And uh, lest you think it was a simple system, it wasn't. And I point all this out because some of you might listen and be like, man, you're simplifying Judaism way too much. You're right. I'm going to do that um, for the rest of this episode, at times, I think. And I'm doing it as a way of making some broader observations about Jesus and about religion. So what was Jesus's relationship with religion? And by the way, this is not an easy question to respond to, and my observations that I want to offer today are not exhaustive. They're only what I'm learning and what I'm seeing. They are, as Father Richard Rohr says, a view from a point. Uh, And so here's some observations. First, Jesus grew up within Judaism. Some of you are like, wow, dude, you are slaying the, (laughs) the observations. Uh, no, Jesus grew up within Judaism. Now, I know that, that's incredibly simple, but I, I'm going somewhere with this. Um, Jesus, just like every other boy in his day, learned to read by reading the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible, Torah, Torah referring to the first five books of the Bible. Um, Jesus learned verses like everybody else. Jesus memorized the text like the boys in his town. And Jesus more than likely not only learned to trade, but Jesus learned the tradition around Torah, or we would say the commentary around Torah. Today we call that Mishnah, which you can, 
you can buy a book or you can find it online. Um, but in Jesus's day, Mishnah was only in oral form, which meant you memorized all of it. And you would learn about the commentary around Torah, around the Hebrew scriptures from all of these teachers who had gone before you. And Jesus learned about these teachings that preceded him. Jesus was close to his religion. As a matter of fact, I would say Jesus was closer to his faith tradition than any of us listening right now. And it appears that throughout the Gospels, Jesus leaned on the teaching that came before him and leaned on his tradition a lot. Jesus knew the Hebrew scriptures well. Jesus knew the tradition of the elders, the Mishnah, well. He knew the teachings of other rabbis and what to do when there was a meeting in the synagogue. Luke tells us that Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his custom, and on the day that he was to read from, uh, do the reading, he picked up the scroll and he found a place in it. Jesus, this was familiar to all of him. Um, Jesus uh, knew the teachings of rabbis within his tradition. And I say that because two of the leading voices within Pharisaic Judaism in Jesus's day were Rabbi Hillel and the other was Rabbi Shammai. And now they were incredibly larger than life figures. They were um, so influential that they had followings in, in Hebrew. They would call it Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, the house of Hillel, the house of Shammai. They were two schools of thought and they didn't necessarily agree with one another. Shammai was the more conservative. Hillel would be the more liberal, maybe a way of saying it. And Jesus, when it comes to questions and teachings and ideas, he often lands very close to Hillel. One example is this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, I believe it is, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums up the Hebrew scriptures. This sums up the Bible, we might say. Do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the Bible. And we call this the golden rule. But here's the thing, that wasn't original with Jesus. There's a story about a man who went to Rabbi Hillel and said, I will become a Jew if you can teach me all of Torah while I stand on one foot. And Hillel said to him, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study. What is hateful to you, don't do to your fellow. That's the entire Bible. The rest is commentary. Go and study. Jesus is clearly influenced by these words because Hillel, some say, depending on the date of Jesus' birth, died when Jesus was young. And Jesus agrees more often with Hillel than he does with Shammai. But there is a time where Jesus agrees with Shammai, so much so it's almost as though he's quoting Shammai. And when he agrees with him, it's about divorce. In Jesus' time, many believed a husband could divorce his wife at will as long as he gave her a certificate of divorce. There's even one um, uh, rabbi who says, you can divorce your wife if she burns a toast. Just give her a, a certificate of divorce. And that was challenged by Shammai, which is interesting. He said the husband could not divorce his wife except for cause and that the cause must be sexual immorality. Now, if you're not familiar with, the question, or with Jesus's teaching, Jesus, when he talks about divorce, says, God allowed you to divorce or God allowed Moses to um, give your wife a certificate of divorce because your hearts were hard. And he said, but I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality commits adultery. So it's a reflection of a teaching that came from Shammai. And Jesus, more than being just influenced by teachers, Jesus grew up observing the law. 
Jesus was circumcised according to the law. His parents, we know, traveled to Jerusalem for feasts, and we know that they traveled to Jerusalem for feasts because they left him at the temple. And I can't imagine what that was like. I mean, they're parents, right? So at some point, they get to a checkpoint or they're stopping for the night, and it's like, hey, where's... Has anyone seen Jesus? Like, where, where's Josh? I, 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 and then imagine them going back to the temple. We always put, when we quote Jesus, we seem to put like words in his mouth as though he's this really kind of like deep sage, you know? So Mary finds him and he's like, do you not know I'm here about my father's work? I am guarantee you, beyond that sounding really creepy, by the way, especially if you're listening to this on earbuds, I guarantee you that's not like the sum total of the interaction. Mary finds him and is like, oh my goodness, there you are, because she's a mom and her kid has disappeared. And he's like, oh, didn't you know I was going to be here about my father's business? She's like, your father's business? He's worried sick. He's still looking for you. Um, these are parents who were observant Jews who went to the feast. Jesus grew up going to these pilgrimage festivals. Jesus, we know from the Gospels, when he was an adult, continued to go to these festivals and these feasts in Jerusalem. Jesus observed the law. Jesus ate kosher. Jesus heals a leper and says to him, go show yourself to the priest, which is what is commanded in the law. And I point all this out because there are some who contend Jesus came to upend religion, almost like he had this seething hostility toward it and he couldn't stand it. But from how I read the gospels, that doesn't seem to be there at all. I think the relationship of Jesus with his religion was way more complex than him not liking it or trying to topple it or him having hostility toward it. Jesus was immersed in the religious world of Judaism in the first century, but Jesus also brought new meaning to this religious world. Or I would say maybe it's better to say Jesus brought a deeper meaning to this religious world. Jesus reframed things for people. Uh, Jesus pushed against socially accepted norms, absolutely, um, and he pushed against those who, while they seemed to be pious, were actually working against the heart of God. If I were to summarize um, my, again, this is my opinion, but this is how I would explain Jesus in Judaism and what I'm learning. Jesus understood that religion was not the ultimate vision that religion was not the final destination, but religion is a good vehicle that has the power to lead all people toward a bigger vision and on a journey into the heart of the divine. Let me say that again. I think Jesus understood that religion was not the ultimate vision. Religion was not the final destination, but religion is a helpful vehicle to lead all people toward a bigger vision and on a journey into the heart of the divine. Now, I, I think that requires probably probably a little bit of explaining. Uh, one of the things that we witness in the Gospels is what feels like a near constant debate between Jesus and teachers of the law and Pharisees. Again, teachers of the law, Pharisees, scribes, not all a part of the same sect. Uh, and these debates arise around all kinds of issues. And I think it's too simple to say Jesus just wasn't into legalism or like Jesus wasn't a rules guy. No, Jesus is always getting at something deeper. And many of the religious... Um, were very interested in ensuring their religion remained pure and that they, as keepers of the religion, remained pure. So there were some, not all, but some who had rules about purity. And like one rule is if your clothing touches someone who was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, then that makes you unclean. So imagine how they felt about Jesus eating with sinners or eating with hookers and drunks. Um, 
Jesus is bringing uncleanness to them, toward them. And the reason that, by the way, that they wanted to keep the religion pure and undefiled was so that they could commune with God in the temple uh, and they could get to God. And after all, this is the program God laid out for them. God gave them 613 commandments in the Bible to obey. And what began to happen in some places and with some people, and by the way, this still does, is that religion became the vision. Religion wasn't a vehicle, it became the vision. Religion became the central thing. The rituals, the beliefs, the ideas, the temple, all of that was supposed to be a vehicle for an experience in communion with the divine, but instead it slowly became the goal of the whole enterprise. And what that created in certain circles was a division, one that existed between those who were in, meaning those who were serious about the goal, those who were observing the religion, and it was a division between them and those who were out, meaning those who didn't care about the goal or those who were unclean or those who weren't following the rules. And the way this was seen by the super religious uh, was that those people were far from God and the object of God's ire, while we, well, we are the object of God's delight. And this way of thinking is what Jesus raged against. And he often used their thinking and their teaching against them. This is actually true with uh, Jesus' talk about hell. Jesus never once used the threat of hell against anyone except the religious who used the threat of hell against sinners. Go ahead and see for yourself, as Richard Rohr would say. Richard Rohr was always like, yeah, I'm just telling you what it says. Go read it for yourself. Jesus never once used the threat of hell against sinners. He only used the threat of hell against the religious, and it was the religious who were using the threat of hell against the sinners. And Jesus constantly suggests that the least likely will be the ones who end up at the feast with Abraham, a way of talking about the life to come, and that the religious will be outside where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is always like blowing up the the lines and distorting the boundaries and moving things around. And um, anything, any single thing that kept anyone away from the love of God That made Jesus lose his mind. He would not tolerate that because Jesus understood what the vision was and Jesus understood that religion should be a vehicle to bring people to the heart of God, not a barrier. That religion is not the vision. Religion is not the goal. And so when religion kept people from God, Jesus would not tolerate that. And if he had to suspend the rules, the laws of religion, he would. In other words, if the best religious beliefs and the most sacred religious rules ran against the life and love of God, then the beliefs and the rules were out of the door in a second. If the best religious beliefs, if the most sacred religious rules somehow did not line up with the life and the love and the heart of God, then they were the wrong rules and the wrong beliefs. So this viewpoint of Jesus is found in other places, by the way, within his tradition. So again, his attitude came from within his tradition. For example, the temple. This is where people say like, oh, this is when Jesus was like down with Judaism. Um, The temple in Jesus' day had devolved into a system of exclusion. Certain people could go certain places, other people couldn't. And it was um, really a moneymaker for an elite few who had worked with Rome to create the system. And Jesus goes in to the temple. By the way, in the Gospel of Mark, it says on his way in, Jesus curses a fig tree, which everyone's like, what? And then he keeps going, goes into the temple, drives out the money changers. And by the way, this would have been a small little skirmish in this massive temple complex. And 
he starts, he quotes Jeremiah and says, you know, my father's, this is my father's house. It's supposed to be a prayer for a house of prayer for all nations, for everyone. And he's like, but you've made it into a den of robbers. And then Jesus walks out and the fig tree is withered from its roots. I mean, what just happened? This, by the way, this is incredible prophetic guerrilla theater right there. Now, what's happening is Jesus is saying this whole temple system that you have going, it's, it doesn't work anymore. It, it's not what it was supposed to be. And it's going to die. And it's interesting how you have the cursing of the fig tree before he goes in the temple and the fig tree withering after as though it's a symbol of what's going to happen to the temple. That the fig tree was supposed to bear fruit. And the reason Jesus cursed it is because it didn't. He goes into the temple. It's supposed to bear fruit and it's not. He comes out of the temple and the fig tree's dead. He's like, yes, this is it. Dead things don't bear fruit. This is Jesus. This is a prophetic act. Uh, he's, he's working out what's happening. Don't put things between people and God. Religion was always second to human life. Religion was always second to whatever the spirit was up to. Religion was always second to God's love. And for Jesus, it was flexible. And it was to be used as a vehicle, but it was in no way the final authority. And when it needed to change, he changed it. I mean, go look at Matthew chapter five. Jesus says multiple times, you've heard it said, but I tell you, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's Jesus amending parts of the Bible. And some of you are like, well, he's Jesus. He wrote it. He gets to do that. But hang on a second. Don't forget that Jesus empowers and lends power to his followers, which includes you and me. And there's some that say when Jesus talks about binding and loosing, well, he was saying, you have the power to do this too. And by the way, we have done this. Think about slavery. For thousands of years, people used the Bible to support slavery. But then in recent years, we've said, uh, hang on a second. You've heard it said, masters, treat your slaves as you would a brother. But I tell you, owning another human being does not reflect the heart of God. We, we've changed it. We, we've changed the interpretation. Now, some might say, well, no, we just interpreted it correctly. No, we've changed the interpretation. We've taken what our religion has told us and said, nope, this needs to change. And if you look at the Christian tradition at its best, it's always forming and it's always reforming and it's always evolving and changing and deepening because religion is not the goal. It's not the vision. Jesus seemed to know this and was always calling people into something bigger, namely the heart and love and life of the divine. Jesus was not against religion. Jesus was against religion that gets in the way of God. But he seemed to understand that religion can be a beautiful and healthy and helpful vehicle to get people into an experience of the divine. Let me give you an example of how this played out with me several years ago. Uh, there was a conference here in Denver, and I was a part of it, and there was a gathering of like, uh, some conference attenders and some of the speakers and some of the organizers. And I was in this large room and we're all talking and there was an individual I was talking to and we got on the topic of LGBTQ, uh, the LGBTQ community and the church. And the, in the conversation, he said in a less than positive way about a group of people, he's like, well, you know, uh, they're inclusive of the LGBTQ community. And I said, well, so am I. Now, 
I knew he didn't know I was. So I said, well, I am too. And he said, what? Really? So you've just thrown out your theology? And I said, no. Um, It's just that if my theology, when it walks, or my theology, when it's lived out, doesn't look like Jesus, then I just think it's bad theology. (laughs) In my experience, people want to argue at the level of religion, meaning like beliefs or theology or the finer points of this verse or that verse. And by the way, that has a place. Um, we want we want to argue about what or who can be a part of what ministry. That's all religion, by the way. That's not the vision. And I want to I use this example because I want to ask this question: What has that viewpoint or that religion done? What has the religion of exclusion done? Maybe I could say it this way: What is the impact of how the church the uh, has treated, spoken about the LGBTQ community? Well, research says that suicide rates are through the roof uh, for LGBTQ people who have grown up within a conservative evangelical tradition, which is the tradition I come from, that, that uh, LGBTQ teens are eight times more likely to commit suicide having grown up in that culture, that 40% of homeless kids come from conservative Christian homes and they're LGBTQ because they get thrown out. So you have to ask the question, what has our religion done? How has the church treated, spoken about the LGBTQ community, and what's the fruit of that? I mean, there's stories of heartbreak. There's stories of self-hatred. There's people, stories of people who just abandon God. And when I sit with my LGBTQ friends who grew up in the church and they talk about how they would sit at a light and when it turned green, they would be like, God, just let a car run the red light and broadside me and kill me, take me now. Uh, or wanting a truck to cross over a double yellow line. Oh my goodness. And, and, I, and I sit there and I think, okay, if my beliefs are responsible for people wanting to kill themselves, if my beliefs, if my religion is responsible for people wanting to die, what needs to change is my religious beliefs and my religious rules, not the heart of a person who just like everyone else wants to be loved. And maybe that guy is right looking back when he said, so you just throw away your theology? Yeah, I do. I do throw away theology that harms other people because religion is not the vision. And if religion does not lead people into the heart of God, then we need to toss it. And I'm glad I did, quite frankly, because religion is not the vision. Religion is not the goal And this is what Jesus was always doing. He was taking parts of religion out that were harmful, parts of religion that kept people from God and said, no, 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 no. We don't need to throw the whole thing out. What we need to do is we need to make this a healthier vehicle so that you can get to a healthier place altogether. Another thing that Jesus did with religion, this is another observation, is he infused new meaning into it. I mean, consider Eucharist. Now, Eucharist was... um, Jesus brought this to bear during a meal for the Jewish people that is about liberation, the Passover meal. Jesus takes the bread and takes the wine at the meal, and it says, he says, this is my body and this is my blood. And I'm confident, by the way, the disciples sitting at the table at that moment weren't like, oh, totally get it, love it, why don't we keep doing this, right? I'm confident they didn't get exactly what he was doing at that moment. It doesn't even seem like all of them understood that Jesus was on his way to death. Um, 
And they had decades to let it sink in before the Gospels were written, by the way. And it seems at time, like the Gospel writers, even in writing it, are still sorting out what all of it meant anyway, like after the fact, because Jesus blew the roof off the joint by lending new meaning to, to religion. And again, he didn't trash religion. He didn't say, okay, guys, enough of the Jewish stuff. We're going to do something totally different. No, he took it deeper. He invited people to look through their faith into the world to discover new contours to life and to how we could live it. I mean, consider this. Jesus uh, is crucified, he's buried, he resurrects. And according to the Gospel of Luke, after his resurrection, he meets two people on the road heading toward a town called Emmaus. And uh, as he catches up on them, as they begin conversation, he's like, hey, what's going on? Like, well, you haven't heard about what's going on? And they talk about Jesus dying. And somehow they're like kept from knowing who he is. And it says at one point that Jesus is like, well, this is what had to happen. And and he says, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he like basically recapitulates their story. He retells their story. He gives their story, um, tells them the same old story, but does it with a brand new meaning for them to consider. And whatever he said in that long conversation, what we learn is that he joins them for a meal. He breaks bread in front of them. Their eyes are open. They're like, oh my goodness, this is Jesus. (laughs) It's been him the whole time. And he like disappears from their sight. And then they say, we've got to go tell the others. Were not our hearts burning within us when he was talking? Were were not our hearts burning within our chest as we listened to him recapitulate, retell, give new meaning to this ancient story? You see, Jesus reframes their story. He gives new meaning to it. Jesus reframes reframes, um, the religious rules around Sabbath. Jesus plays fast and loose with the Bible when it comes to new interpretations. And again, you're like, he was Jesus. He wrote it. He can do this. No, let's not forget, he was fully human. And Jesus takes parts of scripture and gives new meaning to them that had never been given before. And and maybe we can say it this way. Jesus used what people were familiar with. Jesus took what people knew and in injecting new meaning into it, he helped them go to a new place that they had never been. Jesus used what people knew to lead them someplace they've never been. And this, this observation, this has influenced me so much when it comes to inviting others deeper. Because what I'm learning is like, just like it appeals to me, it it appeals to a lot of people to rethink, to move deeper, and in doing so, open ourselves to a more helpful way of seeing and living in this world of ours, to to move deeper into our tradition, and by moving deeper into it, opening ourselves up to to a greater understanding, awareness, depth uh, about life and living in this world. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with people who feel like we just need to jettison everything uh, with regard to our, our religion. And like if they want to hold new ideas or think in new ways, they just, they have to let go of all of it. They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as someone might say. And I understand, by the way, there are some people who just can't do the Christian thing at all anymore. They just can't. Um, and so for them tossing the whole thing, that's what they need to do. I understand that. But there are others who are like, I just have to throw all of it away if I'm going to do or believe or hold on to or do this or that. No, you actually don't. You actually don't. Remember, Christianity is a big, massive, broad, sweeping tradition. 
And if we look to Jesus, what we recognize is that Jesus is using the, the faith tradition that people knew to bring them someplace they've never been by injecting new meaning into it, by inviting them to look at it from a different angle. And I interact with people all the time uh, who, who are in a place where they want to see what this Christian tradition thing, <laughs> capital T tradition, has to offer. And it's much less threatening when you invite someone to the text, when you invite someone to the tradition, when you invite someone into church history, because people all of a sudden go, oh, okay, so this is not like just something you're pulling out of thin air. Here's an example. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Now, you might be like, well, Jesus died on the cross because God was angry and God needed someone to die so he could forgive us, like, right? Right? You're familiar with that. It's called penal substitutionary atonement. It's one theory. And I say one theory because there's a lot of theories, a lot of thoughts about why Jesus died on the cross. And what's interesting is the Gospels actually never say exactly why Jesus had to die. They just say he did. So if you start by saying to people, I don't think Jesus died on the cross for sinners, people will be like, whoa, I just had an interaction with somebody a couple days ago. They were like, um... I heard you say something, and it sounded like you were saying Jesus didn't die on the cross uh, to save sinners. And I was like, nope, that's not what I'm saying. I was like, first, here's what's helpful. Remember, there's like anywhere between eight and 12 major theories of atonement. And I'm like, and why would there be just one? The cross is such a massive, big thing. It's the the hinge on which, in my opinion, um, all of history swings. It reveals what's always been true about the heart of God. Why would you ever have just one way of explaining it? And he was like, wait, wait, there's, there's how many theories of atonement? And just by saying to him, like, whoa, let's, let's look at this. And remember, we come from a tradition that's talked about this for thousands of years. And if we start there, maybe then we can inject new meaning into how we see the cross. You don't have to say, I'm tossing this. It's total BS. It's garbage. I'm moving on. No, 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 no. Maybe we go deeper into it. A friend of mine um, has really struggled with Christianity. And he told me recently, he's like, I feel like I'm befriending it again. And he said, but now I want to see how deep this Christian thing goes. I'm like, yes, this is my sentiments. Exactly. Why? Because when Jesus came and was teaching and was in his world of Judaism, he was always saying, let's go deeper into it as a way of encountering God. And this is so helpful because it's not like you have to, um, drop ideas or, or and say, like, we're done with this. And it's also not saying we're just going to engage new ways of thinking and pull them out of thin air. No, it's taking something ancient and seeing that it still has the power to lead us towards something new. And in my experience, people will listen and engage and challenge in a healthier way if you start with conversation about our religious tradition and how it can move us forward, and how it's moved others forward, because it's what they know. So think of it this way. What happens is there's less fear associated with these conversations, and fear is often what produces anger. Fear is what produces the hostility. When you can remove fear from a conversation, when you can remove fear from the equation— all of a sudden people are very interested in having the conversation because they know their religious tradition and they're more willing to move forward and move deeper toward a place they've never been. And by the way, I could talk about the implications of this all day, um, but I want to try to wrap this whole thing up by bringing us back to 
the idea of this episode. I'm still here. I'm still comfortable with the label Christian and how Jesus's interaction with religion helped me. So first, let me talk about how this has helped me. And I know those are just two lengthy observations, but let me say this. First, um, it's helped me see that the ritual and the framework and the traditions and the art and the beauty, all these things that have come from the Christian tradition and come from the Christian tradition globally, by the way, um, it's helped me see how to engage these things in a healthy way, that I'm not called to death grip them and look to them as the things that I need to do or the things I'm supposed to have. Or um, No, these are just tools. And I have the freedom to engage them and I have the freedom to release them. Like There's still something in me that when I hear the tune of an old hymn, and there's, there's very few old hymns that I really dig, but there's a, there's a few, like one lyric, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh my gosh. And then bind my wandering heart to thee. Like, oh, those, those words, the, that's something I was given from my tradition. And there's so many things where when I think about the world I came from, I'm like, like I said on the last episode, there are some things where it just feels like home. I had someone recently say to me, they were sharing about a, um, a difficult season they were in. And I said, what can I do for you? And they said, I know this might sound weird, but could you pray for me right now? And it was, we both kind of laughed. And the reason it sounded weird is because this is a person who's really, again, wanted to leave the Christian faith, but like just feels like, no, I think there's something here. And in, in this desire to leave for a season, just br- pushed everything off the table that they had learned. And now they're coming back like, no, I think there's still some things here that are helpful. There's still some traditions. There's still the ritual. There's still the bread and the wine. There's still that this is the body of Christ broken for you. There's still the baptism, which is one of my favorite traditions. This idea of, you know, you're buried in the likeness of Christ and you're raised in the likeness of his resurrection. There's the Christian art that that has been around for centuries and is still being created, by the way. And again, I'm not called to death grip these things, but what I'm realizing is all of these things are mine. All of these things are ours. And all of these things are tools that have the power to lead us, to lead me, to lead you into an experience with the divine. The whole thing is a vehicle. It's not the vision. It's a vehicle that has the power to lead me deeper into the mystery of God, into greater union with the Christ. And in the times this religious expression works against me, in in the moments where um, my experience of any of those things stops me from having union and intimacy or an experience of the divine mystery, well then, the religious rules and the beliefs, whatever, the, the tools, they have to change or evolve or they have to get tossed. And this is what I'm learning. If it leads you toward the heart of God, beautiful. Use that. You're free to use it. If it prevents you or anyone else uh, from engaging with the divine, then it needs to go. It needs to change. The second thing that I want to share is the recognition that the Christian tradition has invited me deeper. And it's invited me deeper by uh, allowing me and inviting me to reframe it, to continue building, we might say, to continue reforming. And um, it's also, in, in my best moments, 
um, it opens me up so that I can be reframed, so that I can be renewed. And it's taught me to see that, uh, I mean, all things are sacred. It's caused me to relate to other people differently. It's caused and is causing me to ask questions about generosity and justice and love and serving. It's teaching me to have a robust vision of myself, one that's clothed in humility, to actually love myself in the way that God loves me. And it's these things where I'm always reminded of the power within this big, broad, beautiful, capital T tradition that we call Christianity. And I'm learning more and more um, how to invite people forward within the Christian tradition as I find myself invited forward within the Christian tradition. And this is why I'm diving more deeply into it all the time. It's something that I know, um, and yet it's something that continues to lead me into places that I've never been. And as I discover these new places, it's always asking me about where I am. Are you going to stay there? Are you going to move more deeply into the heart of God? Are you going to plunge more deeply and fearlessly into the divine mystery? And when I see Jesus's relationship with two religion, one of the things I recognize is that Jesus didn't seem to be stifled. Jesus didn't seem to be confined in this religion. Rather, Jesus had tremendous freedom within it. And we might say that Religion, when properly engaged, actually lends freedom. And it's interesting that you see Jesus opening things up for people and inviting people to move forward toward the heart of God and using religion to do so. And I want to be a part of something like that. I want to be a part of something that is a vehicle that leads people into a deeper uh, experience of the mystery of God, a deeper experience of God's love, to know They are, we are, I am, you are loved. I want to be a part of something like that. And I'm grateful to say, I think I am. And my hope for all of you is that you are a part of something like that, that you are a part of something that invites people into the heart of love and patiently invites all people to take their next step deeper into the love and the heart and the mystery of the divine. And so with that, On the next episode, part three of I'm Still Here, we will talk about the Christian tradition and how the Christian tradition points beyond the Christian tradition to an expansive and universal God. But for today, this is where it ends. Part two of three episodes titled I'm Still Here. Thank you again for joining with us. I hope today for you was helpful and and gave you things to consider, wrestle with, and think about. And so, until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.